Welcome to Hey YA Extra Credit. Every other week opposite the main Hey YA podcast, we'll bring you a short form podcast of YA talk across a wide range of topics. I'm Erica Azafetti. So today I wanted to mention a couple interesting retellings I've come across. And I think it's interesting how prevalent and loved retellings are because we basically already know the story and may even know how it ends, especially depending on how faithful to the original story the author will be. I think that familiarity with the story can be comforting. Maybe that's why, at least partially why, people love retellings and love to write retellings so much. Uh, My personal favorite kinds are ones that are at least a little subversive, ones that are written to include groups of people who have typically been left out, but who you know have always been around. And I know that people like to criticize when characters' ethnicities and sexuality or gender are changed, um, especially when it comes to TV and movie adaptations. But to me, I think that the original story left things out. Like, there have always been non-white people and people of different ethnicities and religions and cultures. There have always been queer people, disabled people, everyone. Everyone has always been here. (laughs) Everyone has always existed. It's just that there have been too many stories that haven't included them. So when I see people change characters' identities um, in new retellings, or adaptations. I just see it as rewriting more truth into that particular story. But I'm curious to know what you all think. Do you like retellings? Um, Do you dislike them? Are you neither here nor there with them? How do you feel basically about them? Uh, Let me know at heyya at bookriot.com. And with that said, I will get into the first retelling that I would like to talk about today. Today's episode is brought to you by Amazon Publishing. So I got a story with a little Old West debauchery, if you want to get a little messy. So there is a city steeped in the Old West mess. And in the city, a reporter is following every lead to a dangerous place, one that could bring him glory and fame or end his life. New York Times bestselling author Robert Dugoni is back with a gripping new thriller of corruption, vice, and murder set in Depression-era Seattle. It's about a reporter covering a hot murder trial who soon learns nothing is what it seems. The story could make his career if he lives to write about it. You can learn more at Amazon.com slash A Killing on the Hill. So yes, A Killing on the Hill by Robert Dugoni is what you need to pick up if you are into some depression era danger in Seattle. It's a city of big dreams and dark ambitions. And this reporter gets caught up in the muck. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Amazon Publishing for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. 
This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. So the first one I have for you is called One For All by Lily Laneuf. It is a queer, gender-bent retelling of The Three Musketeers, That takes place in 17th century France. So the main character is Tanya de Botts. She has a chronic illness that makes others look at her with pity. And I may even say disgust. You know, definitely a lot of discrimination and looking down on her. Contempt even. Even her mother seems to be ashamed of her and wants to marry her off like ASAP. It seems like just about the only person who believes in her, supports her as her father, and he is like her biggest fan, her only cheerleader, all that good jazz. He's also a musketeer and the source of inspiration for Tanya's desire to be a great fencer. Well, one day he is brutally murdered, which is just like, I feel like I built y'all up and just like crushed your dreams right there. I'm so sorry. But he is brutally murdered. There's a lot of mystery surrounding his death. And Tanya comes to find out that his last wish for her was to attend this finishing school. Um, And the school turns out to be, typically when you hear of a finishing school, it's like, you know, the thing where um, young women might go to learn to be proper ladies, air quotes around that phrase. This school is called L'Académie des Mariers. It's been a minute since I took French, so I'm trying my best with the pronunciation here. But... The L'Académie is on the surface a finishing school for young ladies who are destined to be socialites, but in actuality, it is a place where young women are trained to be a new kind of musketeer. The kind who wears like fabulous ball gowns and straps knives under their skirts. So these women are being trained to seduce men to give up treacherous secrets, jump into sword fights if necessary, all the while protecting the kingdom of France. And can I just say, it's giving like Zendaya as Joan of Arc at the 2018 Met Gala. If you haven't seen her gown, please run to your local smart device and have a gander because she really and truly serves, or served, because this was a few years ago. Much like the girls in this book, I am always down for some girls giving a good slay and a serve, if you know what I mean. Uh, So at the Academy... Tanya definitely has her struggles. She has her chronic illness to contend with, and she also struggles with a lot of self-doubt and internalizes feelings of self-resentment because of her illness. Um, As a counterpoint to her self-doubt and society's disregarding of her, she ends up making friends. She has this group of friends that become like sisters to her at this academy. These other musketeers basically make her feel like she belongs for once. But then, because there's always a but then, she and her newfound sisters are meant to uncover an assassination plot. And her target, so Etienne, who is super charming and cute, might also have information on who killed her dad. Um, And like I said, he's the target for her and her other musketeer sisters. They have to um, get this information out of him. So obviously, 
she's super out of sorts now and she has to figure out how her emotions learn to trust people and even listen to what her body is trying to tell her. So this has got swords, skirts, disabled representation, queer representation, found family, a little mystery in regards to the circumstances of her father's death, all in 7th century France. In other words, it's a great old time. And I like how the author provides a note at the end detailing how Tanya actually has what's called postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS, P-O-T-S, which is what the author also has. And she describes what the illness is in the back of the book, how it only just started being diagnosed literally within the last, like, 30 years or so, which is wild to think about. And also goes into her own experiences with it. She explains how it seems to affect a lot of women and girls and offers that reason as a potential explanation as to why it wasn't talked about more in medical circles. Um, And, you know, within the medical field, there tends to be, as in other parts of patriarchal societies, there tends to be a disregard or disbelief regarding women's suffering. And the author makes the case that people were simply not listening to women, which unfortunately still goes on. And very much so within the medical field. It's gotten better, but, you know, it's still there. To this day. Insert till this day gif. If you know, you know. (laughs) That book, once again, is One for All by Lily Laniff. Next up, I have Alice in Kyoto Forest by Mai Mochizuki. It's illustrated by Haruki Niwa. I don't know if you're able to catch one of the extra credit episodes I did a couple weeks ago when I spoke about manga, but I have been getting back into manga and anime and have been stepping out of my like shonen manga comfort zone. I also thought that I should start including manga a bit more here in the show because there are so many great ones out there that are just about anything you can think of from slice of life to action adventure, sports, cooking, like literally like anything and everything. And I think it's Uh, important to just be exposed to different kinds of things. So I say all that to say that I'm going to try to continue to read um, new types of manga, new meaning new to me, and also sharing them and recommending them to you on this podcast. This one is very obviously an Alice in Wonderland retelling. Well, it's It may not be super obvious by the title, but when you see the cover and then you think of the title, it's going to be very obvious. Um, But it's definitely got its own flair. For one, it takes place in Japan. Um, So it's about Alice who becomes an orphan early on and has been living with her maternal aunt and uncle. Her aunt was her mother's sister. Um, Her parents died in a car crash. And that is what orphaned her. Now, her uncle resents her entire existence. Basically, he's very abusive, verbally abusive, and never lets her forget that she is not his child. He even threatens to not send her to high school since in Japan, um, parents pay for high school. So through the years, she's endured her uncle's verbal abuse and feelings of loneliness by escaping through books. One of her favorites, not surprisingly, is Alice in Wonderland. And one day she's reading and comes across this ad for becoming a Maiko at 15. A Maiko is essentially a geisha apprentice. So uh, Maiko are young adult women who train with the expectation of becoming full-fledged geishas one day. 
She sees that they start their training after middle school and she thinks it will be like this perfect way to become independent before high school and a way to escape from under her uncle. So the place she calls for the Maiko training says they will send a car to pick her up and the entire thing is quite sus because it's like they just automatically send a fancy car to pick her up and even when the car comes, there's this British man who's a chauffeur, which is a little odd because Maiko and Geisha and everything associated with the practice is very traditionally Japanese. So his presence is a little bit unexpected, but she's desperate to get away from her uncle. So she goes along with it. When the car door is opened, she immediately sees a stuffed white rabbit in a little suit and thinks it's there to sort of make her more comfortable or something. So she gets in and the driver says they're on their way to Kyoto Forest, which is another odd thing because their destination should simply be Kyoto. But again, she's ignoring some stuff. She's trying to dip expeditiously, as T.I. would say. So she just goes with the flow. They arrive at Gojo Bridge. The driver tells her he can't take her any further as cars can't cross the bridge. He says the rabbit and a stuffed frog that came out. I don't know where the frog came from, but this stuffed rabbit and the stuffed frog are going to be her companions here on out. Now, at this point, as a reader, you're like, okay, what? But poor sis Alice is just lost in the sauce and trucking along. The most she says is like, oh, I don't really like frogs. <laughs> so she doesn't say that. She just thinks it. And, and then she like graciously accepts both stuffed animals she starts to cross the bridge and there's a super heavy fog that that's obscuring her vision from basically everything except for like a few feet in front of her. She's thinking how odd it is that cars can't pass the bridge because she feels like when she was last there, before her parents died in the car accident, cars were definitely able to cross. Then we see an older woman sitting on a bench on the bridge. Alice notes herself that she fell asleep in this place. Hmm which is an interesting detail because the lady soon wakes up and starts to say weird things like how lucky Alice is to have come here, how she herself must be leaving soon. And then she also talks about how she grew to love it, but perhaps never really fit in. And then she literally just disappears. And then again, as a reader, you'll like Alice, like all caps, Alice, like, why are you continuing on girl? Turn back. Obviously, she doesn't, <laughs> and instead finishes crossing over the bridge where she sees people dressed in a much older style. She thinks their style of dress is all for some kind of event or festival or something. And then her stuffed frog and rabbit start speaking to her, and she finds out they're not toys at all, but living creatures who can speak. To add to all of that, when she finally gets to the house where she's supposed to do her myco training. The lady says she wasn't expecting her. Alice tells her, hey, I spoke on the phone with this guy. He drove me here and told me to come here. The lady is like, I've never heard of that guy. I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> A mess, in other words. So the Alice begs her. She's like, please, I have nowhere else to go. Please let me stay here. I'll work really hard. All that extra jazz. So eventually the lady lets her in with the promise that she will indeed work very hard. Um, Alice keeps seeing these strange things around the area. Like there are these people who have animal tails and these there are these weird animals and stuff. And it may be obvious to you, maybe not, that this is 
Well, if you're familiar with manga, you might peep that it's an isekai manga, which is a manga where the characters journey into a new world. Alice is in a new world. We're still figuring out like what happened, where she's at. This is the first volume in this series. It just came out in April. So seems like it'll be an interesting series. Um, there's another one. Uh, volume two is always is already out. Um, so, you know, there are a couple, if you want to continue it, you have a couple books to read. So I'm curious and excited to see how this, um, series turns out. Uh, in addition to being an Alice in Wonderland retelling, it's got some elements of Cinderella. Some people have said, I think I, and I think I see it. I also like about this that, again, with retellings, this one keeps it keeps the Alice in Wonderland story fresh, I think, because again, she's in Kyoto, in Japan. She's trying to become a Maiko, a geisha's apprentice. Um, there are a lot of traditional Japanese um, culture, cultural aspects, like the older style of clothing, you know, the geisha and Maiko culture, and different stuff like that. So I feel like, you know, so what I look for in a retelling, like I said, I like I like him to be, you know, a little fresh, have that familiarity, but then also keep it, you know, keep it inter- interesting and entertaining. Again, that is Alice in Kyoto Forest by Mai Mochizuki and Haruki Niwa. Thanks so much for tuning in today, as well as our sponsor for making the day show possible. You can follow me on Twitter at Erica underscore easy e underscore. Big shout out to Jin Zink, our audio editor, for making me sound great. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week on the main podcast where I will be joined by Tears of Price. Until next week, happy reading. Bye.